Well, I love listening to music. Um, I'm not very good at hearing what is being said. Are you like that at all? Like, I have a really hard time discerning the, the content of the lyrics. It's just something I don't hear well. Some people seem to really hear and know, like, the first time they sing the song, exactly what's being sung. I've never been good at deciphering the words. Have you ever known, uh, like, you thought you knew the song, and you've sung it a certain way for years, and then suddenly you see the lyrics printed, and you're like, oh, that's what they say? I didn't know that's what they were saying. Like, I was, I was embarrassingly old, uh, singing an Eagles song, and I was sure that they were singing, I, you can't hide your lion eyes, and I was picturing, like, this, this person with big lion, like, African male kind of eyes, African, like, animal eyes, like, what is that? I never really thought about it. Like, I wonder, this is sad, they have lion, like, eyes like a lion, and, yeah, and then I, I saw that it was written, like, lying, and I was like, oh, it, like, robs some innocence, you know, it's really sad when that happens. Um, my wife, my wife, um, for years, when she was little, when she was little, when she was little, uh, there's this, this song by uh, Toto called Africa, you know, bless the rains down in Africa, right? All right. So she, she was sure that they were saying, it's, it's going to take a lot to take me away from you, far more than a hundred men on Mars could ever do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of Mars, my, my nephew was singing a Bruno Mars song at the beach a couple years ago, and he was singing, now my baby's dancing. The song goes, now my baby's dancing, but she's dancing with another man. And he was singing, now my baby's dancing, but he's dancing with the muffin man. <laughs> so awesome. Just go with that. Just go with it. I'm still really bad at hearing the words that are being sung. Uh, I'm fortunate to enjoy some of the same music that my kids listen to, and we have these great conversations about what's being sung and and what the song means, and how does it make you feel, and how are they kind of expressing emotion, and it's just great conversation with kids, especially as they, as they get older, but almost always these conversations begin with me asking the same question. What, what are they saying? <laughs> right. What was that line? I, I don't quite get it. My kids seem to have this ability to hear what's being sung, and when it comes to songs, that's important. Right? We need to know the content. It helps to understand literally what's being said. You may love the melody, the beat may move you, but you really need, if you're going to experience the truth of the song, you need to know what uh, she's singing. So the gospel reading today, and it's the text for today's sermon, is actually a song that is sung by Mary, the mother of Jesus. It's recorded in the first chapter of Luke's gospel. If you have a Bible, look there. I'll put it on the screen as well, but it always helps to see stuff in context. This song comes right after the announcement to Mary from, angel, from this angel named Gabriel that she's going to conceive and she's going to bear a son named Jesus. This amazing news to which Mary, with great, uh, I have great admiration for this, she says, I am the Lord's servant and may your word to me be fulfilled comes right after that, and then the song comes right before chapter 2, which we're going to read tomorrow at our Christmas Eve gathering at 4, which is the story of Mary and Joseph traveling to the crowded Bethlehem and then having their baby Jesus there. So we're going to sing this song at the end of today's gathering, but we're going to read it uh, here in a minute together. Right after the promise is made and right before the promise is fulfilled, Mary sings a song. And it's a fascinating song. It's a song about fierce hope. It's a song that's been used in Christian worship since the beginning days of the church. It's prayed daily in monastic communities. Monks and nuns around the world pray this prayer, sing this song as a prayer every day. 
This song is the biggest chunk of words in the New Testament spoken by a woman. It's the, it's the first Christmas carol ever composed. And like a lot of edgier songs, this song really comes with a warning label, at least in the eyes of many. It's a song that has literally been officially banned from public use more than once. And I'm going to tell you more about that in a minute. So at the end of the gathering this morning, we're going to sing this song, but let's read it now. I'm going to back up a little bit before the song, provide a little context. This is Luke chapter 1, beginning with verse 39. At that time, Mary got ready. This is right after the announcement that she's going to conceive a baby. At that time, Mary got ready, and she hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. These are relatives of hers. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting... The baby leapt in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promise to her. Elizabeth says this. And then Mary's response is to sing. She declares, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. For he's been mindful of the humble state of his servant, and from now on all generations will call me blessed. For the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty he has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. So here's this, this meeting of women. One, Elizabeth, it's remarkable, she's too old to be pregnant. Another, Mary, has never been with a woman, had never been with a man. And yet they're both pregnant, and the babies that they carry are remarkably significant in the story of humanity. One of these women is pregnant with Jesus, who is the Savior of the world. The other, Elizabeth, is pregnant with John the Baptist, who is going to point the way and pave the way for people to come to Jesus. And these two mothers of these two salvation figures now come together, and they are proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. That's what they're doing. And the drama of the moment comes to a climax when Mary begins to sing this song. And the question I want us to consider this morning is simply this. What is she singing? What are the words and what do they mean? And I want to suggest a three-layered answer to that question. First, Mary makes it very clear from the start. This is a song of praise to God. Her soul is glorifying the Lord, magnifying the Lord, not in the sense that she's adding more glory to God. You can't do that. But in the sense that she is being increasingly affected by God's glory. Her soul is magnifying the Lord. In other words, it is reflecting a greater degree of glory that is being revealed to her by God. We might say that her soul is expanding. Her capacity for praise is increasing. It's growing. She's erupting in spontaneous worship to God. 
Her spirit is rejoicing in God, whom she calls her Savior. You're the one that's rescued me. She's seeing something she hasn't seen before. She is believing something she hasn't fully known before, and she's experiencing it. What is it? What is this thing? What does she say that it is? It's that God sees her. That's what it is. God has seen me. He's been mindful of me. He's he's been aware of my low estate, my situation. In other words, life's been hard and it looks bad. But Mary and her family and her people are living this under this like oppressive fist of this empire, the Roman Empire, and it's not good. Taxation rate is 90%. The, The working situations for the poor are so severe that the average lifespan was 40 years. It's a really rough time in history to be a Jew, and yet here's this young Jewish girl and she's singing. What is she singing? She's singing that God has seen her. And what's more, she considers herself especially blessed because all generations are going to recognize this. God is doing great things for her. Not only has he seen her, he's doing great things for her. And so she's praising God. She's praising God for this. So up to this point, you could kind of pull these first few lines out of their context which we should never do, but you could. You could pull these lines out of their historical context, out of their theological context, out of their political context, and what you would have is is just a really encouraging kind of modern worship song. So far, these words fit like the cookie cutter of most modern worship songs. I worship you, God, because you've seen me and you're doing great things for me. And and those are beautiful truths. Those are wonderful truths that God sees us. He's doing great things for us. But if we only dip down into this shallow layer of this song, it can become all about me. And without a deeper context, there's no call to sacrifice. And there's no submission to obedience. And there's no recognition that God is doing a much bigger thing. There's a bigger picture happening, and he's actually... He's restoring all things to himself, and he's actually inviting us to join with him in that plan. There's none of that if you pull it from its context. In other words, um, if, if we pull Mary's opening lines from their context, this song gets sanitized and spiritualized, and it becomes far less disruptive and far less revolutionary than it actually is. If Mary's song ends here, it loses the parental advisory warning. Right? And it just becomes safe for the whole family. Uh, but it doesn't end here. Uh, there's another layer. See, Mary has more to say. Did you know that what Mary sings in the next few verses is still 2,000 years after she sings it, considered to be so subversive that for a period of time in, in the 1980s, governments like in Guatemala banned the public singing or reading of this song? It's true. Uh, what was it about the lyrics sung by this first century Jewish teenager that were considered threatening enough to be banned by a modern government? What did she say that earned the explicit label, which barred this song, which had been a regular part of Christian worship since the beginning of the church from public use? And it wasn't just Guatemala in the 1980s. At least three different countries have banned the the recitation of Mary's song in the last century alone. And they're not countries that are Muslim majority, as you might imagine. 
Because the issue is not, in this case, the Koran versus the Bible. No, the issue in this case is those who are in power versus those who are being oppressed by it. That's the issue. So saying or posting the words that Mary sings here, considered threatening, outlawed in Argentina during the so-called Dirty War, the 1970s, the early 1980s. And this reading, um, reading this portion of the Bible was forbidden also in India during British rule, which started in 1870 and went through 1947. Now, why would a portion of Luke's gospel be banned by a government whose allegiance to Christianity is as public as England's? Or as Great Britain's? Or, to be more to the point, why was it banned in Indian churches but read every year at Christmas in England? Why have some governments in power considered Mary's song to be so dangerous that they outlawed it, literally forbid people from singing this song? It's because Mary is singing, and you have to work really hard to miss this in the words. She is singing that through this baby that she now carries, God is bringing justice to the oppressed. That's her message. God is bringing justice to the oppressed. God is working a great reversal in status in which the proud and the power hungry will be humbled and brought low. And those who have been unfairly held down by unjust structures and prejudicial practices will be lifted up, will be exalted by Jesus, who is a poor man just like them and who is also the son of God. In other words, Mary's not just singing, God sees me. She's singing, God sees all these poor people, all these oppressed people. She's not just saying, God's going to do great things for me. Because if it's just about her, that's not threatening at all. It's threatening because she's like, God's going to do great things for all these people who are being pushed down by those who are in power. He's doing great things for the oppressed. God is working a dramatic reversal of status through this child I'm about to bear, right? That's what Mary's singing. And that's why she considers herself blessed, even though as an unwed pregnant teenager, her social standing is shot. Her physical safety is in real danger. But see, her message is that God sees all of that. He's been mindful of the humble state of his servant. Her message is that God is doing great things for the social outcast, for the underprivileged, for the vulnerable, for the one who has no public defense. And that's what she believes is the real life significance to the birth of Jesus. And so that's what she's singing about. Or to put it in modern terms, she's singing about the real meaning of Christmas, which is hope for the oppressed. There's hope for the overlooked. There's hope for the forgotten. There's hope for the undervalued. Jesus is coming for all who fear him, she says, for all who fear him, but especially the humble and the hungry. And so that's a song you want to sing over and over and over and over again, unless you're the powerful and the rich, in which case you ban this song. Because it could get really dangerous if those poor, humble, hungry people actually believe this could happen, right? Dietrich Bonhoeffer is a Christian who was a a theologian in Germany, was killed by the Nazis in the last few days of World War II. 
And he preached about this, and he said this, the Song of Mary is the oldest Advent hymn. He said, it is at once the most passionate, the wildest, one might even say the most revolutionary Advent hymn ever sung. This is not the gentle, tender, dreamy Mary we sometimes see in paintings. This is the passionate, surrendered, enthusiastic Mary who speaks up here. He says, this song is none of the sweet, nostalgic, even playful tones of some of our Christmas carols. It is instead a hard, strong, inexorable song about collapsing thrones and humbled lords of the world, about the power of God and the powerlessness of humankind. These are the tones of the women prophets from the Old Testament who are now come in, coming to life in Mary's mouth, swelling with new life by the power of the Spirit and affirmed by her kinswoman Elizabeth. Mary sings a song that proclaims God's gracious, effective compassion. Isn't that good? God's gracious, didn't earn it, God's gracious, effective, not window dressing, not feel-good stuff, gracious, effective compassion. That's what Mary's singing. We need to hear her words. We need to hear her words. We need to understand this song. And finally, let's just go to one more layer a final third layer here. How do you take a conversation about the meaning of a song to an even deeper level? How do you take that conversation about whatever it is that song you're singing and, go, and, and actually like shine greater light into it? See deeper truth in it? Well, you consider the timing. That's what you do. You consider the timing. What was going on in the life of the artist who wrote the song? What was going on in the, in the story of the world or in history when this song was being sung? For instance, I love the song Dust in the Wind. Uh, it was recorded by Kansas in 1977. Love this song. And it's kind of surprising that I love this song because this song's about meaninglessness. This song's point is basically life is pointless. That's what the song's about, right? Nothing matters. Here's the lyrics. I close my eyes only for a moment and the moment's gone. All my dreams pass before my eyes with curiosity. Dust in the wind. All they are is dust in the wind. It's the same old song, it's just a drop of water in an endless sea. All we do crumbles to the ground, though we refuse to see. Now, don't hang on. <laughs> People say, hang on. He's like, nah, don't hang on. <laughs> right? Nothing lasts forever but the earth and sky, and then it slips away. And all your money won't another minute buy dust in the wind. It's like the nihilist theme song. It's like a, an anthem for meaninglessness. Songs written by Cary Livgren at a point in his life where he's coming to terms with just how meaningless his pursuits up to that point had been, just how empty his life had become. And this is why I love it. He wrote this song just, because he be, just before he becomes a Christian. Right before he like comes to the term, comes to terms with like the futileness of his own life and the, the, the hope of the reality of what Mary is talking about in the gospel of Jesus. The words of dust in the wind, they reveal this nihilistic worldview, like nothing matters. All we are is dust in the wind, but you get a sense of timing about the song, and it reveals so much more about actually what's going on. It makes the song so much more meaningful. So let me show you just two things that are happening timing-wise around Mary's song. Uh, one looking back, one looking forward. First, 
Way back in Exodus, like 1,446 years before Mary sings her song, another woman named Miriam, she sings a song. Miriam is Moses' sister, and she sings a song with very similar themes. People of Israel have finally been freed from slavery to Egypt, where they've been for 430 years. And so Pharaoh, the, basically the king of Egypt, suddenly changes his mind, long story, frees this entire slave labor force, and oh, by the way, as you're leaving, please take a lot of our gold with you. It's this dramatic reversal in status. And then they reach the end, of the, they cross this sea, the sea swallows up all these pursuers, and, and we hear Miriam sing a song that's very much like Mary's song about how God's performed mighty acts with his, his strong arm, how he's brought down rulers from, it, from their thrones. He's lifted up the humble. He's filled the hungry with good things. He sent the rich away empty. He's remembered his servant Israel, the promise he has made to Abraham. It's this epic, dramatic reversal. I mean, yesterday they were slaves, and today they're free. Yesterday they had nothing. Today they're, they can't, they're carrying all this gold that people gave them as they left. Miriam's singing this song of this marvelous act of salvation. By the way, Miriam is the word, is the name that we get. It's the Old Testament written in Hebrew. We render this woman's name in English, Miriam. Uh, in the New Testament, which is written in Greek, we render that same name, Mary. So here's these two songs sung by these two women with, with the same name about something that God has done. He has freed the oppressed Hebrew people from slavery in Egypt. Is this some sort of spiritual sort? No, this is like actual physical, political restoration. And about 1,500 years later, the Miriam of the New Testament, she's singing the same kind of song. In other words, God has done this before. He's done this before. He's freed the oppressed before. He's rescued the poor before. He's accomplished a dramatic reversal of the poor and the powerful before this event. It's the Exodus. It is the major event of the Old Testament. It is deep in the memory of the Jewish people. Even though it happened a long time ago, Mary remembers this. It might be a distant memory, but she remembers it. And now she's declaring in her gospel, her good news, God's going to do it again. He's going to do it again. And it'll be a whole different level this time. And then the second detail about the timing of Mary's song is that I want to point out is that she's singing this hopeful song about a revolution before it actually takes place. In other words, Mary is declaring these amazing things by faith. She looks out the window. It looks just the same as it did yesterday, right? Rome's still in charge. There's still poor people everywhere. What I want us to see is that Mary is singing about future realities in the present tense. What God has just barely conceived is, just barely started, but it started. It's far from finished. And yet Mary is singing because the future deliverance of her people from oppression is moving her now. It's affecting her now. It's making a difference now. In other words, God has begun something inside of her. She has surrendered herself to God's plan. And before any of it is apparent to most people, she's singing about this future hope in the midst of her present pain. That's where it's making a difference. That's called spirituality that makes a difference. Having a hope about something that is to happen, but it's actually affecting you right now. We've been talking about this this season, anticipating hope. This is what Mary's doing. She's literally um, experiencing the emotional effects of a hopeful reality that has not yet taken place, but it's taking place in her effectively changing the way her outlook 
uh, changing her outlook because of her faith in what God's going to do. He has saved his people before. He's going to save his people again. He's rescued the oppressed before. He's going to rescue the oppressed people again. And between God's deliverance in the past and God's deliverance in the future, Mary's singing. She's singing. Between what he has done and what he will do, Mary's singing a song. And it's a song of hope. That's what it is. It's a song of hope. Mary's present situation, totally full of real-life challenges, just like many of you. She's got family issues, big time. She's got financial issues. She's got all kinds of negative social repercussions of saying yes to Jesus in her real life. She is seen as less than by those who are in control. There are all kinds of social and economic difficulties surrounding Mary right now, but she's choosing hope. That's what she's doing. She's choosing hope. She is singing a song of hope. And so here's my question. What's the song you're singing? What song are you singing? What are the words that are erupting out of your mouth? What are you choosing to hold on to right now? What are you choosing to believe? What are you singing about for yourself? And for others, what are you proclaiming? What are you sending out into the world? What song are you singing in the midst of your troubles? In the midst of your pain? In the midst of your privilege? In the midst of your oppression? What are you singing for yourself, for others? Friends, I invite you in the name of Jesus to choose hope today. To choose hope today. And may you face the brokenness of your world and the adversity in your life with hope. And like Mary, may you sing of God's deliverance for yourself and for others. Amen. Let's pray together. Oh, God, I pray you just move us beyond the, the typical, the normal, uh, the comfortable, the traditional. May we see and hear the truth more accurately. May we be moved by it in a way that is beyond the cozy. May we join you in your greater work. May we recognize the danger of becoming powerful and rich. May we work for justice. May we take great hope in what you're doing in our lives and in the world through Christ. May we choose hope today, tomorrow. Please, Lord, fill us with the ability and the courage that we need to choose hope and to sing. In Jesus' name, amen.